I think, I think some of this happens when you get a little bit older and a little bit more worn on and a little bit more cynical in years, but it's hard to, it's, it gets harder to recognize anything original when you get, I'm 40 now, and it just gets more and more difficult to be able to acknowledge something original. I was watching um, a TV show with my kids um, Saturday morning. I don't know if you remember the chart show that would involve uh, new tunes and music videos and all the rest of it. And the, the guy uh, hosting the show said, this is going to be an original act. And um, I was like, okay, I'll stick with it. I'll stick with this for a couple more minutes. I'll give it. And my kids were all really engaged. My three kids were like, yeah, this is an original act. And up pops a young really good-looking guy uh, with a guitar singing um, a heartbreak song about unrequented love. And I was like, in my, and my kids are all like, yes, this is, this is original. This is stripped back music about heartbreak. This is an original song. And I was in my 40 plus years, a real cynic. I was like, this is, I've seen him in the 90s. I've seen him in the 80s. I've seen Elvis being him. This is, this is King David from the Bible, really good-looking lad, stripped back. That's what this is, old and uh, cynical. It's hard to see anything original. We are all shaped and more social constructs than we could ever know or believe. We're all, we scorn at the guy that says this is original, but we are all ultimately really shaped individuals. And every now and again we see it. Every now and again we see it. Every now and again you'll do what I do and you'll say something that's exactly what your dad would have said. It's just, it's just, and it's, so I had this just the other day, and I, I felt like I'd almost crawled inside his body, and it was all of his mannerisms. He does this thing, my lovely dad, when he's a bit nervous, he whistles when he walks into a room, just to sort of, I don't know how that really works, but he whistles to try and comfort himself, and I caught myself whistling, and I thought, what's happened? Who am I? And I'm, all, the, all the while, I'm thinking, I'm sure I'm an original guy, I'm sure I'm, I'm my own man, and yet clearly I'm so shaped, and not just by the genetic imprint of him, I'm just, he's, his ways and his thoughts and his Yorkshireness and all of that stuff, I'm, in, I'm imbibed with that stuff. You ever caught yourself regurgitating the news like it's your own information? You ever caught yourself doing that? I'm a sucker for doing that. I'll read the papers or I'll watch, uh, listen to a podcast or I'll watch the news and I'll just pass it off as myself and I'll not, and I'll not even realize I've done it. I'm just, we're, we're shaped and molded by the world around us, aren't we? It's only in the last couple of years I've realized that my view of friendship and relationship and like men and women has been largely shaped by Friends, the TV show. Just looking back, I'm like, I, I, that was, I just must have watched it for like five years every Friday night and I just thought that's, these are the three models of men, Ross, Joey and Chandler, guys are like that and friendship looks like that and, and it's only been in the last couple of years that I've thought, well maybe actually, Maybe it's not like that. Maybe I don't need to hold out for that ideal. I don't need to live in a flat with a couple of cool mates. Maybe, maybe I can have friends in a different way. But we are so shaped. And these are just the trivial things of life. We are so shaped. Our morals, how we view uh, the world, the rituals that we pick up, how busy we are, our life philosophies, how driven we are, what we expect from our careers, all this stuff. We are part of this huge flow of life. Thomas Nagel said, everywhere is a view from somewhere. Wise old philosopher who's basically saying, we're all plunked down into a world, we're all shaped. None of us 
are able to reliably give anything original. We are all shaped. But every now and again, and this stuff happens kind of in the extremes of life, every now and again, we are pulled out of the flow. Kind of places that it happens, happened to me recently, and a friend of mine recently, you get some really bad news, you get a really bad diagnosis, you get a reminder of your mortality or something like, like that, and it just jolts you enough. And it, to sort of paint a bit of a picture, it feels like it shifts you out of the flow of the world that's bumping along that you've formed a really strong view of, and it just lifts you up far enough to be able to look down on it and go, okay, so that's, that's how the world is, that's my life, that's how it goes. There's a philosopher called John, no, he's not a philosopher, he's a theologian, excuse me, he's called John Alex McKay, who often used to holiday in Madrid, and he passed off some of his theories about the world from, this, from the view of a street in Madrid. He'd see, he'd see the busyness of the street, thousands of people making their way down the road, and he'd say, this is most people's view of the world. It's called the balcony in the road, is this theory. Have a little look for it. It's quite helpful when thinking about life. Most of, most of us grasp our view of the world from this busy road. We're in it, and we like, occasionally we get to have a little look left and right, but mostly we're just bombing on. He said, the privileged people get to see it from the balcony. And I guess he must have had a meal in a balcony looking down at the busy road, realizing that he could see from the position in the balcony, he could see the stars above, and he could see the rat race below, and he took it as a privileged position. This, every now and again, we get a little glimpse of what this is like. So you're traveling around. You've got a two-week holiday. You've been somewhere exotic, somewhere you wouldn't normally go. The culture's really different, and all of a sudden, it dawns on you, oh, man, this culture around here, they eat at nine o'clock instead of the middle of the day. They always take a bit of a nap. They run at a different pace. They all eat as a family. We don't do that back home. And you question, you ask, and it can be really dangerous, these moments, because you ask massive questions about yourself. You, you start to, th when, you, when you're pulled out of the flow of it, when the bad news comes or when you're on a holiday, you ask the big questions. You start to say, I'm, do, I really need to, do I really need to live like this? Do I need to live at this pace? Are, this, are these moral views really right? You just you start to have a tiny original view of the world only for a second because in a couple of Mondays' time, you're back at work and you're back into the flow of it and you're getting bustled along again. The book of Colossians, this letter of Colossians, if you stay with us, if you stay with me, if you read along, it's about a city, a church in a city, stuck in the, or absorbed by the flow of, and we'll go into it a little bit, of Rome, of the pace of life that Rome brings and all of the confusions and philosophies that Rome brings. And Paul writes a letter into it and causes the people to look up. You read particularly chapter two. He says, what I'm going to do with you people, what church is going to be, the church at Colossae, the church at Castleford, we're going to be a bunch of people who, yeah, we're in the floor, but we're going to be dragged up to the balcony to have a look for ourselves and try and think something original. So, a couple of things I want to do, kind of three things. I want to show you the flow of life in Colossae. So I'm going to tell you a few things about Rome. I'm going to tell you how I think the church, the initial church, gets pulled up from its braces to the side of the bank to have a look at the flow of the road. And then I'm going to tell you why I think it matters to us today, why you should bother to listen to me for the next 15 minutes. So you've got to stick around 
for that. So first of all, the flow of Rome. So first thing, the Roman Empire was a colossus. It was huge. It was an enormous thing. It stretched from, at its peak, Hadrian's Wall, because they didn't fancy Scotland for whatever reason, right down uh, to the Middle East, right down to the Euphrates in Syria. It's about a quarter of the world's population. One of their mottos for life, and I'll probably say this wrong, was Imperium Sine Fini. Anyone? Empire. Yeah, maybe I got it right. Empire without end. And their ideology was that this empire would not be ended by time or space or anything else. It had huge influence. If you're in the middle of this empire, you're a citizen in the Roman Empire, you can't see past the huge big guard at the end of your street. You can't see past the 15,000. This is how long the Roman Empire existed for. Now think about the British Empire. I think a couple of hundred years, and we think it's got this huge influence. Maybe think about the American Empire. Maybe 50, 60 years, maybe a little bit longer than that. The Roman Empire was one and a half thousand, one and a half, one and a half, thousand years huge massive influence you couldn't see past it you're a you're a citizen you're a christian living in colossi you can't because it shrinks you doesn't it when you think about the empires when i think about how much influence when we think about how much influence british citizens can have think about brexit think about the european union think about the big conglomerates in the world you just think you just feel like you're a a bit of a nobody, don't you? It kind of shrinks you. This is how it feels to live inside a big empire. The second thing I want to point out about Rome is that it brought the fusion of, a fusion of cultures. Maybe you've heard of the Pax Romana, a time of Roman peace. It doesn't seem all that peaceful, but I guess it's like any time of peace. There's just, there was a time of peace basically because there was a guy with a really big stick who was in control of everybody. Everybody stopped fighting with everybody else and there was somebody in control and there was peace around this Roman Empire all around the Mediterranean coastlines. There was a time of peace. And what happened in this time of peace was that people traveled about like never before in the world's history because what did the Romans do? What's that saying that we have all roads lead to Rome? They put good roads in. There's some, I think, not far away from us here in Castleford that would end up getting you there. To Rome. They put roads in and people traveled about and interacted. So like never before, there was interaction. So what we had, there was some frosty, cold, cultured Northern Europeans meeting some, kiss you as soon as you see you, Italians. So you had this fusion of cultures. There was the spice racks of the East. Some dude with a spice rack of spices that you've never heard of bumps into a guy that can cook or who likes his cooking, who bumps into a bunch of new vegetables from southern France or something like that, and all of a sudden, you've got this amazing fusion thing happening. It's, it's an ex- all of a sudden, there's some cook there whose eyes are popping out of his head and whose tongue's on fire because he's like, we've got spices here, we've got vegetables that you've never even heard of before, we've got new cooking techniques. This is what happens in, when cultures grow, and we know about this today. We know how this sort of stuff works. There would have been sitar players from Spain. I think that's, I think that's where sitar pl- players come from. And there would have been belly dancers from parts of the East. And they would have come together. And you would have had this 
if, that, if it's your persuasion, some kind of awesome new music, new belly dancing kind of thing happening. This is what was happening all over the place. And this is what was happening in the church at Colossae. There was this huge fusion, just this massive big fusion. The other, and what happens, just to sort of, because we experienced this, I think, I don't know, and I, I sort of, I looked around just to make sure that we experienced this. I, I googled Jamie Oliver and fusion, and I was pleased to be informed that his latest TV show is all about vegetables, and the latest dish that he's come up with is called a cauliflower cheese pizza pie. Cauliflower, cheese, pizza pie. Fuses together. It's awesome, isn't it? This fusion of stuff. And do it, if you're cynical about this, take the humble kebab. Come from somewhere in Turkey, you've got the humble kebab, and I think we put curry sauce on it, or we put other sort of random bits of sauce on it, and we have it with, because we're so great, we have it with chips and a beer. And it's this culture, and you wouldn't be without it, would you? It's just an amazing thing, but it's a cultural fusion. That's what happens. Things fuse together. What else happens when cultures fuse together? We like the food, we like the music, we like the fashions, all that's good, but we're human beings and we don't get on. Think about any cultural fusion that happens. Think about Britain today, see Colossae 2,000 years ago, when the people come together like that with these this sparks of creativity and beautiful, beautiful bits of fusion, and then we fall out with each other. And you can think of any different groups of people you want. Go into the middle of London and see the gangs. Think about how the English hate the Scots and the Scots hate the English. Or maybe everybody hates the English, the Welsh hate the English, the French hate the English. Think about, whenever we are forced together, there are two phenomenons, I think, and other phenomenons, but two particularly. There's magical fusion and there's this grim reality that we don't get on. So culture fuses, it's an empire that you can't see past. The other thing about the Roman Empire I want to just embed in your head as we, as we make our 10 weeks through the series, this forms a bit of an introduction, is that they governed, they governed with fear. Maybe every empire does that. The Roman Empire did that. They govern with fear. When they came, when they came to, well, when they went anywhere, is another Roman expression, they would say, vini, vidi, vici, something like that. We came... We saw, we conquered. When Gaius Julius Caesar rocked up on the white cliffs of Dover, he saw the painted people of Britain, and he was just like, yeah, we'll, we'll have them, and just moored his boats up in London and strolled on in most of the time and established his empire with power. With power and with threat. Military marvels and shows of strength. And it's significant for the story of this church and the story of Jesus. The way that they demonstrated this power. So what they would do, they would have garrisons and they would have soldiers in the streets and they would walk around with spears. But the other thing that they would do on all their city walls is they would have crucifixes. They would say, we are in control. This is our authority. Mess with us and this is what will happen to you. When I was younger, my mum and dad had three videos, and me and my brother and sister would watch either Spartacus or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something else that I can't quite remember. And it was often Spartacus, and I just thought Spartacus was made up. I thought Hollywood had got hold of a story and just ran with it. And maybe they did a little bit, but it's a true story, the story of Spartacus. These gladiators escape and confront the Roman Empire. 
it's an awesome story. And I think it's Michael Doug, Kurt Douglas, this ultra handsome dude from the 20s or 30s, is the main character. I'm Spartacus is the storyline. And it looks like they're going to, for a second, overturn the Roman Empire. And this is just before the time of Jesus. And they end up getting trapped in the south of Italy. And so the historian Josephus would tell us this 6,000 of Spartacus's followers who are stuck on crucifixes. The Roman army, the Roman Empire said, we govern here. You are not going to mess with us. They use threat. And it's into this world. And this is not an insignificant, this, I think this is not insignificant in God's plans. It's into this world, this empire, governing with this kind of threat, using the cross in this way, that Jesus comes with his cross. He's born in humble circumstances. And we'll get back to it at the end, but he picks up his cross and he's going to do something with that cross. It's into this world that Paul's message is overheard by Epaphras. This Turkish guy, Paul, preaching roundabout, gives a word. Turkish guy picks it up, standing at the back of the crowd. He hears it. He goes off somewhere else, back to Colossae, and a church is born. So have in your mind this Roman Empire, this strength, this coverage, this thing that you can't see past. I want to tell you about three ways that the church grows. Three ways that church exists during this time from this text. So Maybe we'll read it back just to remind ourselves of it. Three ways that it, that it grows and then why it matters. Here's the first thing. Notice what Paul is blown away by about this church. Have a look at the text. If we could pop the text up. What is, what is it that blows Paul away? What does he say? And you can tell by the start of the text, he's sat there probably in prison somewhere, and he's, and he's like, this is amazing. But what, what is he amazed at? He says, we always thank God when we pray for you. What, what, what's, what's caught his attention? What's, what's blown his mind? As this church at Coloss, Colossi got a, a really good gaff of the of the of the invested well in a good property, are they doctrinally sound? Have they invested in some really good teacher? No, that's not what blows him away. What blows him away is that in this Roman culture, this Roman influenced world, where all this different fusion of people have come together in Colossi, just this mad mishmash of people what blows Paul away what makes him say this has got to be a work of God this has got to be a church is the fact that this bunch of people get on they love one another do you see it there in the text that's what blows him away they get on they love one another what does that mean for us and this is kind of what the text says faith in Jesus Christ means and this is really, I think for all of us in our own little quirky little way, this will be really hard to hear. It means that we've got to love each other. Are you hearing that? How hard is that to hear? Hasn't everybody in Christian circles got a gripe with somebody else? Isn't there somebody down the road that just drives you mad? Either they can't sing or they won't listen. Or heaven forbid they believe something slightly different than you believe. To have faith 
in Jesus means that we get on with each other. It's a huge deal for us in the church. Jesus extols these virtues. And we, we, go, we, we think about all these different strategies that we can do as church, and Jesus, Jesus would say, the way that we get on, the way that we interact, is like a crucial point of evangelism. It either draws people to Christ, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Now think about the history of the church. Think about what we've done. Think about what it looks like. Think about what you, your pals say about the church. When they look at us and we don't get on, I mean, we might think about strategies, we might think about the importance of the sermon, we might think about all this stuff. When they look at us and we don't get on, they go, why should I listen to you? We give them reasons to not believe. And yet, when they look at us and they see in a world that is fractured, that is hugely different, that's where there's just this huge fusion of different people and belief types and histories and prejudices and all the rest of it. And when they see that we can manage to get on, when they're looking at Christchurch, see the mishmash of people and go, man, these people get on, then it points to him. I guess the question that you ask, and it's the question that I ask, is how, how did they manage this? Where did this love come from? It's in the text. We've not stopped giving thanks for you. We've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And it says in verse 7 and 8, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Love in the Spirit and love that springs from hope stored up for you in heaven. Think about this. What determines where you share your love? What determines who you love? What determines how generous you are with your love? What, what influences that? Have a think. What causes us to, to love some people and not other people? I think this direction in the text I think it's I think it's to do with where your hope is where you've got most things invested you're invested in yourself you're invested in your own career and you might not love lots of people around about you you're invested in your family and, and you get hope from the fact that they will love you back and you put all your hope in that then your love will, will go that far you see I think we're pretty conditional in these matters we love ourselves, our families, stuff we like, because these things give back their good investments. So in terms of our love, often there's a bit of a glass ceiling on how far it can go. Have you felt that? Have you seen that? You see this story of all these different people and this church in Colossae that loves everybody and find yourself in a spot where you think, well, my love actually, I'm exhausted with just five people. I've got nothing much more to give than that. How, where does this love come from? How do they generate this love? It's love that springs from hope stored up in heaven. We, I say we, and I make the generalization. Maybe you look at me and go, it's not me. We, we base our love on where we place our hope. Now these people, for the first time in their life, I would suggest, had placed their hopes 
on something else. They'd placed their hopes in heavenly places. They weren't looking around at the other members of their congregation that were different than them and that annoyed them and expecting them to suddenly change and transform to warrant their love. That wasn't where their hope was. It wasn't, it wasn't like us hoping that each of us would come round to our way of thinking and become more lovable. That's what we do, isn't it? We, that's, I'll love you if you become a bit more like me or if you say sorry to me more often or whatever else it is or if you become more funny. There's conditionality with it. These people loved beyond that. The expression that the Bible uses is that it says that it springs up. It's like this idea that all of a sudden, to make the church grow, there was extra love. This idea of a spring in an arid country, it's like miraculous provision. The love sprang up and sustained the church and allowed it to grow. This is how the church works. This is the miracle of the church. This is what God has done throughout the ages. He's caused people to not put all their hope in others, but to have more hope in him. To have love that springs not from looking around at other people, but to have love that springs from looking at him. To place our hopes in heavenly places. And what does it mean to do that? To, that's like living in the knowledge of your forgiveness. It's things like that. It's like I've got love for somebody else other than just my kids and just me because I can't believe that there's a God who looks at me and has completely forgiven me. I'm a forgiven guy. I'm a wretch of a dude, and yet I've got forgiveness from God. And all of a sudden, because this is where my hope is, because my hope's in this forgiveness and not somebody else's forgiveness, all of a sudden I've got a bit, I've got a bit more love. I've got a bit more room. It's the security of God's love that allows us to love more. It's a spring up in us. And I would, I would say that the church is hanging on, the, on this. This is how God works. This is how he moves. We make it about a bunch of different things. We make Christian faith about a bunch of different things. And God says, pin all your hopes on me and see how much love you'll have. You can forget strategy if your hope is placed on me. That's the first thing. So this, this church has got spirit and it lives inside the spirit. The second thing that this church got is that it got grace. And it didn't just get grace. See in the text, it understood the grace of God. Paul's reflecting from prison and I think he's kind of like He's kind of like stunned at the power of the gospel because he's like, I'm in jail now. And a couple of weeks back, I delivered this message and at the back of the crowd of this message was this guy called Epaphras and I was talking about grace. And this guy obviously clocked what I was talking about grace and he wandered back to his hometown and he told them about the grace. And all of a sudden, in this Roman empire that you can't see past, that you would think there's almost no point confronting in any way, there's almost no point in having any other kind of ambitions, this church springs up. A Turkish guy heard it and now it's a church. Paul looks at it like it's some kind of magic bean. The grace of God is some kind of magic bean. It's like I could plant this. Anyway, see what it says in the text. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit 
and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. See where the, the lesson is in there? This church that you can throw anywhere that, that springs up in Colossae in the middle of this Roman Empire based on a bunch of people who truly understood the grace of God. Not that had a great strategy, not that had great plans, not that tried harder to be a Christian. Because we do that, don't we? Do you try and do that? Ever tried just to try harder at it? I'm not, I'm not ruling it out for you, but that doesn't get us that far. See, what the, see, what, see where the, the treat is? See where the joy is? See where the lesson is? They truly understood God's grace. Paul, Paul reflects back on this story and says, man, I could, if I could get this little message out to the Eskimos and the North Pole, who've got no prior knowledge of anything Jewish or any of this history, if they could understand God's grace, then it would grow and spring up. If I could just get them to understand this grace, this is where it sits for us. I think we think, we think again that, that, that being a Christian is about all, all sorts of uh, different things. And yet, we see the story of the church growing, and we see the key factor is that they just understand the grace of God, that they just live out the grace of God. So they stop coming to church, or they stop being a Christian and thinking it's about how hard I can work or how much effort I can put in, and they start living every day realizing that they're broken. That's where it starts by realizing that they're broken. People think that church is full of good people, or it should be full of good people doing good things. Church should be full of people who realize that they're broken because they've grasped grace. They realize that they can't, they can't do it. They can't stay good, they can't get good, they can't remain good, and they lean more and more on Christ and understand that any good in them comes from him and they live every day knowing these things this is what living in grace is and Paul says if I can just convince people of this the church will grow and this is what happens now if you're I don't know maybe you don't have faith maybe you're working through some of these questions I take real joy I take real joy and real comfort knowing that. I've got friends who've traveled around the world and I've read stories about Christian missionaries who've traveled around the world to places that have got no concept of the Christian story whatsoever and they've dropped in in these little places and they've dropped in these stories of grace and people have come to faith and the church grows in a completely different place, in a completely different direction. I take great comfort from seeing this huge Roman Empire that knows no end, that rules with an iron rod, that looks like it's in control forever, I take great confidence from the fact that this empire is now just something we read about in history books. And that church in Colossae, that mishmash of people coming together, dependent on Christ, still exists still grows strong. In fact, something very similar to it exists here, moved from Colossae into Cass Vegas. This 
group of people, this mishmash, all on the strength of God. 2,000 years later, empires pass away, and yet the people of God remain. If your faith is failing, look around at this magic bean of the gospel. Look at the power of the grace of God in people's lives. So those are the two ways, two ways so far. The church exists in the flow of the world. The last one is that it has a perfect leader. All of the empires that exist in the world are based on an ultimately flawed premise. All of them, even the empires that exist today, in different ways, they're established on threat. Even, even now, the big empires are the ones that sit with the threat of law, the threat of law and a nuclear bomb somewhere hidden away. This is what their empires are based on. And this is kind of necessary in the world that we live in because people aren't good enough to not live well without that threat. But these empires are ultimately exposed because if we only ever if we only ever respond if we only ever accept governance because of the threat then we're never going to really trust the leaders and we see that today and if that is the system of government then the leaders are always going to ultimately be, need to be corrupt or become corrupted when they get there so ultimately down the line these empires are going to crumble when when Jesus establishes his empire in this Roman world where they stick up crosses around every city to mark out their authority. Jesus sees that. God sees that in his wisdom. And Jesus takes what man designed to build an empire to rule with authority, Jesus literally picks that cross up and sticks himself on it. And he establishes his empire not because he wields a bigger stick, but he demonstrates his leadership characters, characteristics in that he submits to the authority. And the people that then follow that leader don't follow that leader because he's corrupted or because he wielded a bigger stick. They follow him because he's perfect. This is the savior that we have. This is church, simple church. There's a perfect leader. It's fueled by unconditional love. And it's an enduring story that will never go away. Now, the question that you could ask, I guess, if you're really cynical about this, if this is not your story, is so what? What does it matter? Why should I care? Crocodiles have endured for thousands of years and I don't think there's any great lessons to be learned there. My gran lived to be 107 and smoked like a train. I don't think I should follow her. Why, why does any of this matter? Here's why it matters, I think. Because the world is, and this is something I truly believe, and this is why it matters how we live, what we do, that we carry on, that we keep coming here, that we keep following this pattern is because the world is aching for the way that God established the church to be. The world is aching for this. 
It's aching for unconditional love, isn't it? Isn't that breaking the world that everything is so conditional? Doesn't that kill us in the end, eventually? The world is desperate for unconditional love. The world is desperate for a place where you don't have to pretend to be okay. It's desperate for a grace-filled space. It's desperate for a place where you can come and say, don't love me because I'm good. I'm a mess up. I've done things wrong. It's desperate for this. And it aches. And we see, I think we've seen this more than ever in the last couple of weeks. It aches for a perfect leader. The world is screaming for a perfect system. And it is completely unable to find it. And you only have to turn on the questions of parliament, houses of parliament questions, to see the way that we ache for a leader. And in Christ, this mishmash of people, we have one that is perfect. And we see it in his cross. The world around us, why does it matter? The world around us needs to see it. Let's live it this week in him.